0: Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by Liquidware, creators of FlexApp, the most feature-rich application-layering product on the market. And... Brought to you by Policy Pack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, mitigate ransomware, and more. If you enjoy the podcast each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. In the minimum requirements that were listed for Windows 10 version 2004, it was stated, quote, Beginning with Windows 10 version 2004, all new Windows 10 systems will be required to use 64-bit builds, and Microsoft will no longer release 32-bit builds for OEM distribution. This does not impact 32-bit customer systems that are manufactured with earlier versions of Windows 10. Microsoft remains committed to providing feature and security updates on these devices, including continued 32-bit media availability in non-OEM channels to support various upgrade installation scenarios. Quote. So obviously don't expect laptops to ship from manufacturers with 32-bit Windows 10 in future. And the register suggests Windows 10 version 2004 may be released by the end of May. In fairness, it's probably past due that 32-bit be put to bed anyway. And personally, I'd be happy to work in only organizations who have standardized on 64-bit. Because those who have not are really just kicking the can down the road. And they potentially will have to deal with some application compatibility issues once they do. Best to just bite the bullet and get it over with. And, I mean, theoretically, the juice should be worth the squeeze. Because if you're on a 32-bit system, you're not going to be able to leverage the full resources on modern laptops, workstations, and so forth. So just do it. And just like that, it's time for the May patches. This month, there's a pretty massive 111 fixes in the Windows updates. In fact, it's the third largest in the history of monthly patches. Among the most severe bugs patched this month that could be weaponized for attacks against users in the future, ZDNet lists ZDNet lists CVE-2020-1023, 1024, and 1102, which are related to Microsoft SharePoint remote execution vulnerability. So, a pretty serious one. CVE-2020-1067, related to a remote code execution vulnerability in the Windows OS. 1064, which is an MSHTML engine remote code execution vulnerability. 1096, which is a Microsoft Edge PDF remote code execution vulnerability. 1051, 1174, 1175, and 1176, which are related to a JET database engine remote code execution vulnerability. The good news, according to ZDNet, is that unlike the last couple of months, this month there are no actively exploited zero days that are being patched. The patches cover 12 different products from Edge to Windows and from Visual Studio to .NET Framework. One of the most concerning vulnerabilities patched this month that I read about was CVE-2020-1048, which can be exploited with a single PowerShell command according to Alex Ionescu. With the PowerShell command let add-printerport-name and the full path to the UALAPI.dll. If that's run on an unpatched system, that will install a persistent backdoor that won't go away even after you patch, which is pretty concerning. And of course, it's not just Windows updates around this time of the month. Adobe have published their own patches too, which come with fixes for 36 known vulnerabilities. 16 critical flaws across Acrobat and Reader applications and a software development kit that if exploited could let someone have complete control over another user's Mac without them knowing it seems like the most potentially dangerous of the bunch. According to cultofmac.com, the concern is that the vulnerabilities could allow an attacker to use arbitrary code to gain access to someone's Mac without their knowledge. There is no requirement other than having Adobe Reader installed in order to get exploited, so everyone is strongly encouraged to patch as soon as possible. So if you use Adobe Reader on your Mac, go in and check for updates as soon as you possibly can. This week, VMware announced their intent to acquire Octarine, whose innovative security platform for Kubernetes applications helps simplify DevSecOps and enables cloud-native environments to be more secure from development through runtime. Acquiring the startup enables VMware to advance intrinsic security for containers by embedding the Octarine technology into the VMware Carbon Black Cloud and via deep hooks and integrations with the VMware Tanzu platform. Combined with native integrations with VMware vSphere, VMware NSX, and VMware Cloud Foundation, VMware are creating a unique and compelling solution to better secure workloads. And with the addition of VMware app defense capabilities merged into the platform, VMware hopes to transform how workloads are better secured. So it's becoming clear now, part of the intent of VMware acquiring Carbon Black and the direction they're heading with continued acquisitions of security products and these cloud-based security products. So pretty cool to see. With a push to a modern browser, many of us may be inclined to remove Internet Explorer completely. I saw an interesting tidbit from Swift on Security on Twitter this week who pointed out that if you remove Internet Explorer, it breaks a whole bunch of stuff since apps that render websites in their interface like Eula messages, for example, don't have that component anymore. They also suggest that IE is forever. It goes to show that I have yet to work anywhere that actually got completely rid of IE. Even when deploying a secondary browser, or even making Google Chrome the primary browser, IE has typically been there as well because there's still been some web apps that require it to run ActiveX components and some plugins that never made the leap. And it sounds like if developers don't up their game, could be keeping Internet Explorer 11 along for around for longer than I expected this week nvidia announced that the first gpu based on its ampere architecture the nvidia a100 is now in full production and shipping to customers worldwide it's said that the nvidia a100 offers the company's largest leap in performance to date within its eighth generations of gpus to unify artificial intelligence training and inference and boost performance by up to 20 times over its processors As a universal workload accelerator, the A100 is also built for data analytics, scientific computing and cloud graphics. In their press release it said that the world's leading cloud service providers and system builders expect to incorporate A100 GPUs into their offerings including Alibaba Cloud, AWS, Cisco, Dell Technologies, Fujitsu, Google Cloud, HPE, Lenovo, Microsoft Azure, Oracle, Supermicro, Tencent Cloud, and more. In the release, they also specifically call out that Microsoft plan to take advantage of their performance and scalability with the NVIDIA A100 imminently. Roy Essers tweeted that Windows 10 ADK2004 comes with a new app V sequencer, which runs fine on 20.04 itself, but... He got runtime errors on 18.03 and 19.09 on Windows 10. Tim Mangan later tweeted a soft confirmation stating that the 2004 ADK AppV sequencer version seems to require 2004 OS to sequence and also that it seems to fix the old short name issue in packages that he has been fixing using his tool TM Edit. So... I guess don't move to the new version of the sequencer until you're ready to deploy with Win 10.2004. Windows insiders can now try out DNS over HTTPS. I've covered the DOE protocol on a few different episodes of the podcast, but if you're new to the podcast and you didn't hear them and you're wondering what DOE is all about, DNS over HTTPS, then be aware that this feature will change how your device connects to the internet and is in an early testing stage. So even if you're an insider and you like living on the edge, only proceed if you're sure and ready. But if you want to see the Windows Doe client in action and help Microsoft to create a more private internet experience for Microsoft customers. By all means, try it out. And you may recall when cloud.com got blocked in China, a workaround was to use the Doe Protocol because it does provide that extra layer of privacy, which helped in China to give a little bit more freedom to those who wanted to access cloud.com. And it's said to be helping in some countries with oppressive regimes to get around these crazy blacklists and censorships. And if nothing else, actually encrypting the DNS names that you're querying and trying to browse to, why wouldn't you want that extra layer of security? Congratulations go to TeamViewer, who has had a 75% surge of billings in the last quarter. I've watched on as the likes of Citrix saw their stock price go up, which was somewhat expected. But I had forgotten about TeamViewer, which now does seem like an obvious benefactor in the need for remote work and remote support, particularly that remote support. I know some small to medium sized companies that I've worked with have used TeamViewer for that type of support model. So I guess it makes sense that there's this growth. And speaking of things that make sense in different circumstances, Citrix have announced that they are making remote PC available to cloud service providers. This has to be one of the quickest ways, in my opinion, to get your users working productively when at home. So it's a really smart move. Just provide a cloud service where they're not gonna require any large Citrix farm and infrastructure on-prem in order to use it. Just have them broker through the cloud to get to their desktops, their physical workstations back in the office where all their applications are already installed and the desktop is in a known good state and has everything the user needs. It's a layup as they say slack had a bad day on wednesday when it briefly disappeared i'm not kidding it was a case of the old 503 service missing error slack stated that the cause of the issue was that some servers in the load balancer weren't registering properly so they scaled out some new servers to take on the requests and those registered and the issue subsided but for a while there no registered servers No ability to take on the load, so it certainly was just poof, gone. And given the current demand for those working from home, it's probably bad timing for that to happen, particularly with Microsoft Teams growing so much and knocking on the door. In a follow-up to a story I covered a few weeks ago about a feature coming to Office 365, the feature which helps to prevent reply all mail storms is now being rolled out to Office 365 customers. So when a pattern of many replies is detected, it will block subsequent replies with a warning. So no more, please remove me from this mailing list, emails going on and on to brighten up your days. And finally, ZDNet had a really interesting article about a joint project between Microsoft and Intel, which is codenamed Static Malware as Image Network Analysis or Stamina, which, Given the weird name, I'm guessing they just tried to make that acronym work. The project relies on a new technique that converts malware samples into grayscale images and then scans the image for textural and structural patterns specific to malware samples. Basically, they take an input file and convert its binary form into a stream of raw pixel data researchers then take this one-dimensional pixel stream and convert it into a two-dimensional photo so that normal image analysis algorithms are able to analyze it microsoft says that it has provided a sample of 2.2 million infected portable executable file hashes to serve as a base for the research and the researchers used 60 percent of the known malware samples to train the original algorithm 20% of the files to validate the algorithm and another 20% for the actual testing process. The research team said stamina achieved an accuracy of 99.07% in identifying and classifying malware samples with a false positive rate of 2.58%. So that is pretty spectacular and that would be so cool if this gets actioned into something that benefits all of us. And what a smart way of trying to do it too really is incredible. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. This week, Brandon Lee shared an in-depth how-to guide that he created on setting up and configuring a remote desktop gateway server on server 2016 or 2019. The post also gets into a little bit of the why you may want to set this up. And honestly, I'm posting this one because it actually came up for me during the week. Someone who likes to use iPads for their work was interested in having a dedicated remote desktop gateway server. So when I saw it, I was like, oh, I should mention this on the podcast because it happened to fall in with exactly what I was looking at this week. So thanks for that, Brandon. It was very topical for me. Guy Leach shared a script that he actually demoed at the Irish Citrix user group this week. And it's a little stopwatch that you can use while measuring like logon performance or app launch times in your environment. I think I shared a video a few months ago of Brand Anderson from Microsoft analyzing with the little stopwatch in the corner of the screen his boot up time and login time on his Windows 10 machine. So if you want to replicate something like that, go out there and grab Guy's script and you're ready to go. Lee Jeffries this week shared a blog post on how to build a two-node scale-out file server for highly available profile storage. If you're going to use FSLogix, which you should, this is a really great foundation to build off of. So build this out, and then really the install and configuration of the FSLogix agent and configuring through the group policies is really simple. So get this done, and you've done the heavy lifting. The rest should be pretty easy. And Lee makes it super simple. Christian Brinkoff posted a blog on how to create an Azure Shared Image Gallery to update or expand your Windows Virtual Desktop session host images. I was talking to a buddy during the week about the setup for Windows Virtual Desktop, like when you're not using something like Nerdio or a Cloud Jumper. And I went through the setup a couple of times when it was still in a preview state, and I grabbed screenshots for my own like documentation, and I was going to upload a step-by-step how-to. But there were so many screenshots that I just, I was like, I don't have the time for this. I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. But luckily, Christian actually has a really, really great step by step setup guide for getting started with Windows Virtual Desktop, too. So you should really check out his website and his blog. For all things WVD and getting started. There's a few different really great resources on WVD out there. It is such a hot topic right now. And we're really lucky because there's so many people going out there being the pioneers and taking the first steps and sharing their information. Probably better than I am, to be fair. Which, hey, before I had kids, I think I was better at sharing my work. So maybe that will get better. I apologize. Patrick Kohler on the topic of WVD has posted a multi-part series on automating all things Windows Virtual Desktop Host Pool related. So that's a good accompaniment for Christian's blog post too. And sticking with WVD one more time, Tom Hickling posted a blog that details the logon process in WVD. So one of the most useful things I find with, say, Citrix, Virtual apps and desktops or VMware Horizon is to understand what the logon process is like. So when a user launches on a desktop or an application, what path do they take? Because that will help you identify quickly and easily issues when users are getting errors when launching and what step of the process that is in. It also helps you to understand you know, what ports need to be open and what the different communication paths and channels are. And the awesome Manil Rodero shared something that I had not seen before which is portapps.io which is a portable applications project so like that idea of a single executable kind of like I guess thin app and cameo although I'm speculating here because I haven't tried the product yet. I was just like oh. That's actually something that I could use right now because Cameo at least seem to be distancing themselves a little bit from the portable application side now that they move to more of a hosted solution. I think ThinApp has an uncertain future and personally, I still do have a need for containerizing or making applications portable and isolated. With this tool, all applications are downloaded and packaged using Travis CI in GitHub. So as you might expect, it is free and open source. And on their website, they say it always will be. So if you check it out and you really like it and you want to help support it, give them a great rating. If you have any issues, provide feedback. And also you can support the project by becoming a sponsor on GitHub or by making a PayPal donation. So I'm going to try this one out for myself and keep it in my back pocket and if I ever have to use it, For a specific customer case, I'll definitely be one of those people donating. And that's it for another episode of the podcast. If you enjoy it, by all means, share with your friends and colleagues. Uh, Give it a rating on whatever your podcast platform of choice is, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever. I'd appreciate that. And as always, thank you so much for listening.